Hello, I'm Aaron Fowler and welcome to another episode of the Disability Sports Podcast. This week, my guest is Lois Turner, who is captain of the Women's UK Blind Cricket Team and a member of the Women's GB Goalball Squad. In recent years, Lois has been a trailblazer for women in blind cricket and now has ambitions of making it to the Paralympics with the Women's GB Goalball Squad. In this episode, we discuss her sporting career so far, her ambitions for the future and life outside of sport. Here's the interview and I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Lois, and uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, how are you doing? Yes, I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. No worries. Um, so, Lois, just wondered if you could start off by uh, telling us a bit about yourself. Um, yeah, my name is Lois Turner. I'm 24 years old. Um, I'm visually impaired with several eye conditions, um, predominantly um, aniridia. Um, and I'm a bit of everything. I'm a bit of a sporty person um, with in regards to um, goalball um, which is obviously for the visually impaired and uh, visually impaired cricket um, they're my main two sports um, and that pretty much runs most of my life most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, you mentioned um, obviously you know about your eye, you know, the name of your eye condition I um, just wondered if you could um, you know just explain a bit about um, how that affects your sight. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a guide dog um, called Buster um, he's a black Labrador who um, is five years old um, so I've had him for well blimey nearly three years now um, so he can get out and about um, and make sure that I get places safely um, and uh, yeah just be my friend as well which is always good <laughs> um, visually so um, some of the eye conditions I have um, I have five different ones but kind of describe my vision as looking at the wrong end of binoculars and um, so what I can see is kind of um quite far looks what what would normally look to uh, those that aren't visually impaired it looks quite far away and lacking in detail um, and with a, a reduced peripheral range um, and then what I do see is like normally quite blurry as well um, because of stuff like cataracts um, and then unfortunately I don't have an iris so my pupils always dilated so I'm great with like like bright lights and um, different lighting conditions and um, when were you diagnosed with your condition and when did your you know uh, vision impaired journey kind of begin um so I was born with aniridia um and aniridia comes with a lot of different other things like a nystagmus um which was born which is um diagnosed at birth as well um however I've later on developed um stuff like glaucoma and cataracts um which is um not not normally um, diagnosed at birth um, with, within aniridics. Um, however, it is very common for people to develop that later on in life. So um, I think we should kind of go back to that intro a little bit, because I think you kind of undersold yourself there. You know, you just said, oh, I play a bit of goalball and a bit of blind cricket. So I'm going to say it for you. So not only does Lois play goalball and play a bit of blind cricket, uh, you are captain of the Surrey Vision Impaired Cricket Team. You're captain of the UK Women's Blind Cricket Team. And you also play for the Women's GB Goalball Team. So I think that's, you know, <laughs> pretty, pretty impressive. So I think you've undersold yourself there. <laughs> um, so I just wondered if you could start by telling us a bit about, um, you know, when your sporting journey began um you know did you play many sports growing up uh and if so what were those sports um and you know what sports did you particularly enjoy growing up mm-hmm. so i um i went to a mainstream school um so sport was not adapted for the visually impaired at all at uh, school um so obviously i had a bit of a, a tricky journey at first um 
trying to get involved in sport um, because I just naturally liked quite a lot of sport. Um, visually impaired sport-wise, I probably started off with visually impaired swimming um, because that was easily adapted. Um, I then, um, I think a couple of years later, I started going to this club um, called Merton Vision who provide um, activity days quite regularly impaired children um, and they introduced me to lots of different sports and one of them that hit home straight away was cricket um, and then from playing cricket I went to their local club um, down in Wallington at the change uh, the change what was the cricket for, cricket for change but now change foundation um, and they introduced me to cricket started playing more and more with that um, and then from there ended up going to Nepal um, as captain for the ladies team where we played the Nepalese ladies team out there for international visually impaired female cricket. Um, played a series there and then started playing a bit more goalball after that as well. Um, kind of like club level. Um, and then in between all of that, whilst all that was going on, I, I went to Barbados um, again with the UK ladies team uh, as captain and we done another series out there. And then I decided that my commitment needed to head a bit more towards goalball. And I started training lots and working really hard in the gym and committing my time as much as I could around my studies and ended up developing my goalball to the point where I was able to play for Great Britain and go on and um, re represent the country in um, international tournaments, um, the World Championships in America, um, European Championships in Turkey, um, so lots, lots of travel in different different countries, and um, yeah, just given lots of challenges every single day. Brilliant. Um, you kind of mentioned, obviously, um, you know, at the start there um, about uh, you went to mainstream school, and obviously, sort uh, you know, sort of um, always having a love for sport. Um, you know, I was a bit like yourself. I went to mainstream school. Um, I was probably quite fortunate in that my sight was kind of fairly good until I was about 14 when it started to deteriorate. So I could still, you know, kind of had some sight to be able to play sports to a reasonable level. But I just wanted to, you know, how did you find, um, you know, uh, PE lessons and sporting opportunities uh, at a mainstream school as someone who's visually impaired? You know, was your sight at a reasonable level where you could partake or, you know, were many adaptations made to sort of help or, how, yeah, how, how, how were your experiences at school? Um, so my vision was definitely better um, back then than it is now. However, obviously, I did have quite a significant vision impairment still. So there were certain things that I just, I tried to do <laughs> and just really struggled. Um, stuff like badminton was pretty impossible to adapt to the impaired people. Um, so I just tried my best to just swing when people told me to swim. Um, and in relation to um, other sports where they tried to adapt it, um the stuff like rounded um couldn't hit the ball for the life of me because I couldn't see it however um I did end up um bowling um and because I didn't need to be able to see the ball all I needed was the um I can't remember what you call it in rounders I think it's a keeper might be a keeper as well I'm not sure backstop may no backstop um I got them to wear quite a bright jumper um so I could just aim at them pretty much <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, my strong arm came in handy there. Um, and then in relation to other sports within school, it was just trying to do the little things that we could do, like ask them to use a brighter ball when playing football and stuff like that. But people will soon learn to run away from me because I kept on missing the ball and kicking their shins instead. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, 
kind of just give it a go kind of situation, really. <laughs> you sound like a 1960s defensive midfielder in football, you know, where they're <laughs> just allowed to, you know, sort of hack away at the attackers and uh, get away with anything. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, you've mentioned, obviously, um, you know, about, obviously, blind cricket. Um, just wondered when you um, first got involved with, uh, you know, Surrey blind cricket team and, and, you know, how did you first hear about them and, and um, how did your journey with them begin? Um, oh, blind. I don't even know what year I joined, sorry. Um, it was probably a good, like, um, let me think. I was think I was probably about 16, maybe, and I'm now 24. So maybe about eight years ago, six, eight years ago, something like that, um, I started playing for Surrey Vision Impair Cricket Hub. Prior to that, I played for the Metro Devils, which was um, being a team based in London, um, through Metro Blind Sport. Um, I played for them probably since I was about 12, something really young. Um, and then after that, I got introduced into Surrey Visually Impaired Cricket Club, which is actually a lot closer to where I lived because I actually live in Surrey rather than London. Um, so I playing for them, um, just trying to help, help with a bit of recruitment and just help the club to kind of develop a little bit because we went from probably about five players to... Um, being able to now put two teams in into um, the league format, so um, yeah, the, the club's developed loads, and it's um, it's been great to contribute and help out where I could. Um, and one one thing, obviously, you know, when you first started with Surrey, um, you know, there was just one team, wasn't there? Um, so for anyone who's not where blind cricket is, obviously, uh, that has kind of uh, a national league, which is now split into a first and second division. So Surrey are in the second division of that. And then there are also three regional development leagues, I think, aren't there? One in the south, one in the north and, and, and one in the midlands. So I think when you kind of started playing uh, and in the first couple of seasons, obviously, Surrey uh, were just in the development league. So, you know, how did you find the... The kind of um, growth and, and um, development, and then eventually the step up from the Open Development League to sort of play National League cricket. Um, really good to be fair. So when we first started playing, um, it was so nice to be able to see the range of individuals that we could support. Um, so one of the very few players that we did have was a gentleman who was probably about seventy-two years old. And he could barely bend down to pick up the ball and we would just pass it to him. And then as we started playing more and we started entering more tournaments and competitions that gave him that extra push, he became a bit more independent and he started bending down and picking up that ball. And just something simple like that, people underestimate how easy um, they find it and how others can find that quite difficult. And it's just amazing that person to like, the, the 10 year old that we had, like the range of individuals that we could help and support was amazing. Um, and then once we started winning all these trophies and stuff and competitions, uh, including one year, we, we won the triples, we won the T20, we won the league and we won um, a development um, tournament in Leicester. Um, so we had some we had some great competition going on with lots of excitement and celebrations afterwards where everyone could just live their lives a little bit and just show what they could achieve, uh, which was great. And then we developed onto the National League, which for me as a female was really important because there's not enough females within the National League. Um, and Surrey definitely have one of the, well, they, I can, I would like to guarantee that I'm correcting this fact, but I could be wrong. So don't stay on it. But um I'm pretty sure Surrey has the most visually impaired females in their team, and to say that they or they play at this at that higher level, I think is is amazing to kind of 
kind of a bit of a role model for other visually impaired females as well because there's just not enough involved in um, getting the support that they need so it's good you're right there i mean um you know i started playing blind cricket probably in about 2008 and um you know when i did there was only two women that i can think of that were playing in the league uh one was uh Gemma, who i played with at hampshire and there was another uh woman who played for sussex i think it was at the time and um you know i had a bit of a break from the game from about 2013 until 2017 when i you know obviously joined surrey and um you know it it was a, great to see you know how many more you know women were playing the game um and i just wondered um i guess you know uh, as you mentioned obviously blind cricket is predominantly sort of uh, dominated by uh, a male kind of playing population and I think a lot of other kind of visually impaired sports are so um, you know do you think now things are kind of changing for the better where you know there are more uh, opportunities for uh, visually impaired women to kind of take up sports and you know obviously do you think it helps with more visually impaired women playing sports that that would then encourage others who might before perhaps have been a bit reluctant to as if maybe they don't want to be surrounded by <laughs> a bunch of guys I don't know yeah, definitely. I think there's there's still perceptions to beat out there. I think, for example, when a female goes into bat within cricket, I think people automatically think it's going to be an, e- an easy one for them to to get out. And um, when we rub it in their faces, it's course always quite nice to kind of give them a bit of a surprise and and then show what what the females can do. And I think it's always a lot easier. Um, and it would be the same for the male population if a male was to join a girls only team um, which wasn't necessarily designed for a girls only team it would be nice for a male to be able to have another male counterpart to kind of be able to go on not the only one and kind of be able to have that commonality with with each other and so for girls to be able to see that other girls already involved it's a lot more encouraging and that means that we can have the outreach for um for both uh, male and female if we can encourage more to get involved and we can help out more and improve their independence in for both both male and female and i i think that's one of the you know one of the great things about uh, blind cricket is that you know uh it really is a game that can be played by anyone of kind of any age really as you mentioned earlier you know sometimes you can get someone who's 70 and equally you can have someone who's 15 in your side and uh you know it's great that it can be played by you know both men and women uh, and people of all from b1 to b4 you know so it's i think from a vision impaired sport point of view it's it's one of the better ones for participation and and i think you know cricket and goal ball i don't know of uh, stats but i should imagine those two are probably out of the team sports probably the two that are uh you know with the biggest uh, amount of people that play the sports um <laughs> one thing uh, obviously with yourself lois i think um you know you am i right in thinking that you've um, won the award for sort of um you know uh best uh female blind cricketer of the year for probably <laughs> about i don't know five occasions something like that um, so something like that, yeah. I think it created it. We first started, um, and I when because originally before I played, um, interestingly, there was not such award, such an award as female player of the year. There was fielder of the year, batsman of the year, and no female was ever getting anywhere near sight of any of them awards. Um, and it it wasn't. It seemed a little bit unfair. Um, so they, they created this award and I won that first award. Um, and then I think I won it four years in a row. Um, and then I had to commit a bit more to goalball, like I said. And unfortunately, I missed a lot of games. Um, so one of my close friends actually won it, um, who's also from Surrey Visual Impaired Cricket Club. 
Um, she won it that year and then the following year I won it again. Um, so yeah, I think it's been about five times now, something like that. <laughs> And, and, and I think it's important to highlight, Lois, that, you know, not only have you kind of won this award, but, you know, I mean, I've been lucky to play with a lot of good players, you know, uh, in my top line cricketing career. And, you know, you're not only, you know, sort of one of the best female players, but also one just one of the best players that I've played with, you know. So I think that's, you know, uh, you know, important to highlight that, you know, you are one of the best players that I've played alongside. And it's been, you know, a privilege kind of, you know, playing alongside you. I think, you know, you're a role model for everyone. Um, you know, you're a good leader on the pitch, you know, tactically good and you know good with the bat and ball so I think yeah it's you know just as a you know uh, as a as a player and a, as a person I think you know you're a role model for everyone so uh, yeah no thank you, <laughs> you don't always uh, you don't always sell yourself you're too humble <laughs> um we've obviously talked quite a bit about blind cricket I just wondered if you can explain for any listeners who obviously might not be aware of the game um what the rules of the game are and how it differs uh, slightly from uh, red ball cricket um, yeah, so um, as you mentioned earlier, there's different classifications within uh, visually impaired cricket and um, they're classified as B1, which is on average um, registered as totally blind. Um, so that on average, that normally means they have a, like a maximum of light perception um, within, within their um, range of vision um, and then lower down to that. Um, so increase their level of vision a little bit as a B2. Um, and a B, and then a B3, um, which are classified as a mid partial within blind cricket, and then it goes up to a B4, which is a high partial. So the rules differentiate um, a little bit between each classification, um, and some of them rules are, for example, a totally blind person is able to um, catch the ball um, to gain a wicket during the as they would during mainstream. Um, however, if they also after one bounce they also gain the wicket um as they would um in a mainstream game um just because they're totally blind and they're completely blindfolded just to prove that they are totally blind and that they're not cheating um um and that gives them that kind of equal opportunity um to be able to do that um and it just shows how good they their tracking skills and their use of their hearing um has to be in order to to do that it's um it's ridiculous to do it to be honest admire them all the time um, and then totally blind players also get double runs when they're batting um, and um, as well as that obviously not probably the greatest idea getting two totally blind people to run at each other between the wickets because <laughs> um, <laughs> that could lead to all sorts um, as funny as it would be um, so they get a runner um, as do some other um, visual impairment categories um, within the sport so to make sure that safety is obviously key um, and to give both teams equal opportunities to be able to kind of gain runs um, but for their vision impairment not to get in the way of that um, and then just simple things like communication um, which um, is underestimated in the mainstream world anyway um, how important communication is um, but within our game it's super super important um, and when we're for stuff like when we're bowling, we have to make sure that the other bats, the batsman is ready, um, because if not, the ball could just come at any time, and you just wouldn't have any idea. So the idea is that we make sure they're ready um, and by communicating and asking if they're ready, um, and then using the word play to um, allow them to have kind of an indication of when the ball is on its way down towards them. 
And uh, you mentioned, uh, obviously, something there, uh, you talked a lot, quite a bit about communication. Um, you've obviously been, you know, vice-captain of Surrey, now captain the side, um, and also obviously captain the UK women's team. Um, are there any other key skills that you've found or, uh, or, or feel are particularly vital when, you know, sort of captain the blind cricket team? Um, just a bit of kind of empathy and understanding. Uh, the better you know your players, um, the better captain you will be. Um, so uh, I think it's underestimated how much you have to consider when you're playing blind cricket. Um, so for example, I said, I don't like the light um, that can significantly affect my vision. Um, and that is quite often the same as everyone else. So trying to identify who can actually face the sun <laughs> when they're playing the, playing the game is quite difficult. Um, so making sure that the people that can see certain amounts are in the right fielding positions is really important and just to be able to kind of understand that with them um, but also sometimes other individuals it's quite common for people with vision impairments to have a disease um, whether it's health conditions or mobility issues but to also take that into consideration during the game it's it's a, it's a lot to think about um, and then obviously thinking about the overs and all the other stuff that normal captains in mainstream, mainstream uh, cricket does um, just trying to manage all of that and um, just make sure everyone's helping out everyone. It's um, leadership to a new level. <laughs> <laughs> um, and as a player, what do you feel your strengths are? Are you a batter or a bowler? Um, depends on what level of the game we're talking about, to be honest. Um, so I would probably say bowling in regards to the domestic level of the game, so that kind of county level. Um, because my I have like quite a lot of pace in my bowling. However, when it comes to um, when it comes to in the international games, because we use a different ball, so we use a harder um, a harder uh, white ball, which is the same size as the mainstream cricket ball. Um, whereas the domestic counter level is a size three um, football, um, with ball bearings inside it. The uh, when we do international ball, the hard ball, if you bowl fast with that, sometimes at your own detriment because all you've got to do is put your back down and the ball just goes flying so I don't really like batting in that game however I do like batting in that game um, because if you've got the brain to be able to decide where you're going to hit it cleverly then people are just running after it for ages <laughs> <laughs> I think it's probably uh, just worth uh, mentioning as well that uh, in the international game the ball is bowled underarm isn't it and uh, it has to bounce uh, kind of once either uh, side of the middle of the crease line doesn't it um, and I know kind of I think I've heard that you know the top bowlers can bowl at kind of 65 miles an hour um, you know um, probably some of the guys that play for England or India Pakistan things like that in particular um, you know so it's it's uh, it's a good game to watch if anyone gets a chance yeah it's, it's absolutely crazy I think there's there's different advantages and disadvantages to kind of what ball you prefer I think when you're bowling with the the bigger ball it's um like I find it like you don't need to be able to see to bowl if you know what I mean when you're bowling with uh, with either of the balls but when you're batting with the small ball it's easier to hear um, and you because it's smaller you've got to be able to hear it so if you're able to use your tracking skills really well then you can be a really good batsman with that small ball. And uh, you mentioned earlier, Lois, that um, you've been on two tours with the uh, UK women's blind cricket team, uh, one to Nepal and one to Barbados. Um, how did the tours go? Um, you know, did you guys win the series? Um, and how was the experience of, you know, going abroad uh, on a tour with the team? Yeah, um, the experience in general um, 
eye-opening for lots of many different reasons. Um, when we went to Nepal, we were very, very early in the stage of female vision impaired cricket. Um, so I, we came, I think we came away with a 3-0 uh, defeat um, against the ser in the series in Nepal. Um, however, we learned we learned quite a lot um, as individuals and, and about each other team. Um, but we also kind of had so much empathy um, for those that are in other countries and how how they deal with their vision impairments out there um, because we're very lucky for what support we get in this country and I don't think a lot of people understand it until they've noticed it and seen the life of others and themselves. Um, in regards to um, the West Indies, when we went to West Indies in the Barbados, we played a West Indies team and we came away um, with a 4-1 four, four win in the series. Um, so... Um, obviously, we, we had learned lots in Nepal lately. Um, um, we did really well. Uh, we did have a day-night experience. So it was a day-night game where we played under floodlights. Now, as I mentioned about visual impaired people with lights, not a great mixture. People can't see in the dark. <laughs> You've got these floodlights that just beaming in your eyes. Um, so that was most definitely challenging. Um, tested our communication um, and unfortunately, that's the game that we did we did lose out on because we've never experienced that or kind of threw us in the deep end. But I'm sure if we had to do it again, we'd be a lot more experienced and um, be prepared. And um, are there any sort of uh, tools planned for the future at all? Um, so um, we're hoping that um, India will be coming over um, for um, a tour this August. Um, that's the that's the plan. Um, so they'll be coming over here, and we'll be hosting them with for a series. Um, that's the hopes. Um, the dates or anything are confirmed as of yet. We're just waiting to. It's a big thing to organise. With <laughs> um, <laughs> COVID, keep, has kept on putting it back. Um, so fingers like that. Um, and um, the other thing is potentially is we'll be playing at the World Games um, in, um, next year. August again um, so hopefully that's something else that goes ahead yeah, and that's the uh, Ipsa World Games the International Blind Sports Association isn't it yeah. uh, being held next year yeah that's um, it's going to be a really exciting time for, for blind sport in, in England um, for lots of opportunity to number one use the facilities in Birmingham which will be fresh and new after the Commonwealth Games um, which will be great um, but also just to showcase sports there are out there and hopefully that will allow us to impact on more individuals lives um and uh let's kind of i guess uh that kind of probably brings us into point to nicely move on to your other uh sporting uh, endeavor uh which is goalball um just wanted if you can start by uh telling us a bit about how you and when you first uh you know got involved with the gb setup um yeah so i started playing goalball probably about five years ago now. Um, and I just played for a local club. I wasn't taking it any seriously or anything. Um, and then I um, ended up trying to get up in the world of goalball a little bit by going from the novice level to intermediate and then elite um, as our three levels of play within England. And then ended up um, being asked to go to GB training um, to help out a little bit and then asked to stay. And then was from then on put up for selection for different competitions. And then um, probably about three, I want to say three years ago, because of COVID it made it a lot longer ago than it should have been. Um, we had 
the World Championships, um, which um, was hosted in America. And that was my first, what we call our major competition um, as a Paralympic qualifier um, that I was selected for. And, and how, how did the World Championships go in America? Uh, off the top of my head, I want to say we came sixth, I think it was, um, at the World Championships. Um, and yeah, it was, it was good. It's a long fourth in days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> long, long way away. So, um, but yeah, we, we ended up being first reserve for Tokyo. Um, so qualification but unfortunately missed out on this um, so we're positive um, and looking forward to the world games in Birmingham because that means that we all, we have automatic qualification for the world games because we're hosting so that's another great opportunity for us to qualify the upcoming Paralympics um, and obviously the next Paralympics is in uh, 2024 uh, do you know what you guys need to do as a team to be able to qualify for that Unfortunately, they're making our life a little bit harder this time around. Um, they have reduced the number of teams that are qualifying, um, that are allowed to qualify. So I think it's something like 10 teams normally qualify um, for the Paralympic Games um, for global. But unfortunately, they reduce it to something like eight teams. Um, so um, I, don't, I don't know the exact what placings we have to come in or anything like that because I think a lot of it has to be considered people like Russia currently are not entitled to play um, so although Russia um, came runners up in the European Championships I'm not sure if that means they qualify or what um, so I, I don't know I try and just play and <laughs> just leave everyone else and just try and concentrate on training myself um, so I'm not sure but Good, good, good um, finishing places in upcoming tournaments will help head us towards the qualification for Paris. And, um, you know, obviously uh, playing for your, for your country in any sport is obviously, you know, an amazing achievement and a, an incredible thing to do. Um, what, since you've been part of the GB setup, you know, what does a typical kind of week involve for you in terms of training? And, you know, as you get closer to a competition, does that training ramp up at all? Yeah, um, so kind of we have a really good setup and support team um, within the squad. So we have a strength and conditioning coach who informs us of what kind of training we should be doing prior to competition, um, during competitions um, and after competitions. So he adjusts that accordingly. Um, so we're out of competition at the moment. So at the moment, lots of increasing power. Um, so I'm doing... Um, two really big strength training sessions a week um, and then doing lots of cardio um, throughout the week um, and like ball in hand training as well, whether it's just throwing up against the wall or whatever. Um, so I try it. I do at least, at least, I'm going to say at minimum uh, an hour a day, um, whether that means I do two hours in one day and then um, one in the next or whatever I do, but at least seven hours of training trying to look more towards 10 hours of training a week and how often are you able to get together with you know the rest of the gb team to, to train uh not enough mm-hmm. <laughs> um obviously we're all very wide uh, across the country um one of the players that comes to our training lives up in scotland um and then um some of us live in cambridge and so it's hard it's hard um and financially obviously 
Um, so we're, we're normally GB training is only about once a month. Um, so I think goalball is probably a sport that, and if you're not visually impaired or know someone who's visually impaired, either you might not have heard of or, you know, you might not know the rules. So I just wanted if you can kind of try and briefly explain the rules of goalball. Yeah, so um, the great thing about goalball is different to um, cricket, vision impaired cricket, is that no classification is treated any differently within the sport um, because everybody's completely blindfolded. So even at a, um, a club level, people who aren't visually impaired can have the sport. Um, so that kind of just gets everybody involved and giving it a go and stuff like that. Um, but however, international level, you do have to have a certificate of visual impairment um, to be able to play internationally um, and be a classification. Um, but the um, it's kind of, I don't know, I never know how to describe it really. So it, we use nine metre long goals um, and they're not the, I'm not sure the measurement, the height, the height is not that great. Um, so I'm a five to eight and it probably just comes up kind of just below my shoulders. Um, and you have to defend that goal um, as a three um, on the pitch at a time. And you have to use your orientation and your hearing skills and your communication skills to be able to um, stop the ball from going in the goal. It's on a sports hall floor um, and throwing the ball in an underhand um, way, whether it's smooth along the ground or in a bouncing action, we try and get the ball into the opposition's goal. However, they're using their whole bodies, um, like their whole bodies, whether it's accidental face or feet or fingers or whatever it is, um, to stop the ball from going in the ball in the goal. Um, but obviously you've got nine metres and three people, so you've got at least three metres to cover yourselves um, and the ball can come at quite a fast pace. The ball's about uh, 1.25 kilograms, so it's quite um and it can come up to like something ridiculous at 70 miles per hour so it's it's at a high level it's definitely um gets your adrenaline going that's for sure <laughs> i was gonna say how, you know how does it make you feel i mean i guess after you've been playing for a while you you obviously get used to it but like you know when you first kind of i guess went into like the gb setup and it must have been a bit of a step up from you know, the, the, perhaps the standard you were playing before. So, you know, how did you first find it when obviously you had to put on shades, your sight was taken away, and, you know, you had to throw yourself in front of a ball coming at you, you know, kind of 60, 70 miles an hour? Yeah, I mean, in regards to putting the shades on, you know what, that didn't bother me at all. If anything, I found it quite relaxing. I find it quite strenuous on a daily basis using the vision I do have. So to be able to be on an equal playing field to everyone else which is actually quite nice um, to show the skills that you've got. Obviously, it can be a little bit daunting kind of when you're first when you first do it because you're a bit nervous about bumping into things but you soon get into it and it can get quite addictive to be honest um especially if you're a pain no game kind of person like myself like I just love the ball hitting me and I'd, the faster someone throws it the better really I don't know why I'm a bit crazy <laughs> when it comes to that kind of thing um and yeah, like it's obviously when it comes to that kind of really fast pace, you do kind of, you stop it and you automatically like make a bit of a noise just to say, oh, that kind of, but it doesn't actually hurt. Like you make a noise, but you don't actually feel pain because you're learnt, you're taught how to stop it properly to make sure you do protect yourself and, and you wear the correct amount of padding. I mean, I have to wear a chest guard, I have to wear knee pads. Um, some girls wear shin pads, elbow pads. 
it, and it's all protective and you make sure that you would never play at that level unless you knew how to stop it properly um so at, at novice level it's it's just quite it's quite good um to just kind of be quite free if you know what i mean you you, uh, you mentioned earlier Lois, i think that um you guys have access to like a strength and conditioning coach who you know can sort of help give you guys advice um, do you guys get you know uh, support and advice from any other forms of coaches whether it be physios uh sports psychologists anything like that Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we do have um, a team physiotherapist. Uh, we also have um, access to a nutritionist, um, uh, and then our head coach, assistant coach, um, and a psychologist, um, who um, in turn come to different camps, and then we can access their support over the phone or or whatever it is that we need. And um, obviously there's a, a domestic game uh, of goal ball, isn't there, in the UK? I think it's divided into kind of like three levels. So you've kind of got like novice, intermediate uh, and elite. Um, do you play for a, a domestic team at all? Um, as of currently, yes, I do. I play for um, Croissant. So that's um, name created between players who were living in Croydon and Sutton. So we changed it to Croissant. Um and yeah, I played for them at intermediate and elite level, um, and then the GB squad. And uh, what's been your sort of biggest achievement in goal today? Would you say? Um. So with um, in regards to with the GB squad, um, I've gone to competitions where, such as uh, Lithuania, where we won a gold medal there, um, and then just in kind of general individually, kind of just being selected for these major competitions um, and to, to go and um, play for Great Britain just in general is probably my greatest achievement because um, it's taken me a while to get there. Um, I had to lose a significant amount of weight and kind of get fit enough to be considered for selection. So um, for me, that was massive. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, and well, one thing, you know, I think with GB and goalball is, you know, in recent years, perhaps we uh, even haven't, been successful in both the men's and women's teams you know in qualifying for the Paralympics but obviously uh you know GB generally we're kind of you know in the top say three or four in the, in the medals table come the Paralympics um do you think uh you know uh, the future is looking a bit brighter for GB goal do you think uh you know are you optimistic with kind of where, where the teams are going in both the men's and the women's game yeah definitely I think um in particular with I mean I can't comment too much on the men's team um but um, in, with regards to the women's team, uh, we've got a very young squad um, with um, everyone par one player who attends GB training regularly is under 30. Um, so, and some of them are, we've probably got about five under under 20 attending training. Um, so the future's bright. If they can all work really hard and commit to the sport, then... Um, you could create anything out of them. You can um, hopefully more top goal scorers and all sorts. And um, yeah, I think the, the setup's growing more and more, kind of the priorities within it, um, making sure that everyone's prepared for different situations and stuff. And we're giving people experience and exposure to different tournaments internationally. Um, like they've got the Youth Championships in Finland um, in about a week coming. Um, so there's lots of opportunities coming. So I can think in particular for the just in Gold War and Great Britain in general, is they're, they're starting to really work on bringing up the future as well. 
Ben, um, you, you've, you know, obviously, uh, you know, achieved a lot already in both, you know, cricket and goalball. Um, you know, how do you keep yourself motivated or what motivates you to, you know, keep improving and, and, and you know, to, to kind of keep achieving, I suppose? Yeah, I mean, I just love a challenge. I think the challenge for me kind of motivates me. Um, so kind of um, with the cricket, I, I love the cricket and being able to know that we could go into national tournaments and stuff is great. Um, and I love playing it. Um, and then when we got to the point where we didn't know if there was much more international series is when I decided that I needed pushing a bit more to become fitter and to just have a new challenge in life in general. Um, so I think that challenge then meant that I, I had to, I lost like five and a half stone to be able to kind of get fitter and, and be like a stronger player and just knowing that I can achieve more the more harder I work and um, kind of just continues to motivate me and I yeah I just love a challenge <laughs> Brilliant. and and what are your sporting ambitions for the future um in an absolute ideal world I would love to go to a Paralympics um I would love for us as a team to um be able to qualify for a Paras um and then for um for me to be able to be selected and head off to a Paralympics would be would be amazing definitely brilliant um and who's your sporting idol uh, either growing up or you know your current day kind of sporting idols and why um i'm you know i get asked this question all the time and i don't really have a massive sporting idol to be honest um i've met some amazing sporting people and um, that have played for years i've met charlotte edwards um and i've got i've actually got like one of the t-shirts um, that she gave me um, one of their playing t-shirts and signed for me um, so that 100% look up to people like that who have achieved loads but you know I actually think it's more the people that I play with within the disability world that continue to inspire me every day that some people who suddenly gain a disability in their life in the middle of their lives and they don't give up they they kind of they go and they go oh well, I'm not going to sit here on my all day I'm going to I'm going to go out there and, and achieve what I can and they're the kind of people that, that do inspire me and I like they just show you that you can do whatever you want to as long as you put your mind to it um so yeah they're all they're all my role models definitely and who's the best uh cricketer you've played either with or against and same question for goalball who's the best player you've played with or against um so in regards to goalball um definitely got to be kind of some of the female international players um like um oh gosh i got to think of their actual names now we have like nicknames for them so there's um one of the israeli players ben david um and then you've got um sevda from turkey she's got like a ridiculous shot um yeah lots of the top female goal scorers who just they just they just seem to just walk past everyone just there's no limit to their to their power ever um and their fitness um so yeah then international like paralympians um and then cricket um i mean i've done i've done i've played lots of times with some of the international men's um cricketers um but to be honest i haven't played with a vast amount of competition within the females game um so um yet as as of yet to experience that um but yeah some of the the men's players are really good 
Oh, um, we've obviously talked a lot about your kind of, you know, sporting career and things. Um, I understand you're going to be uh, kind of starting a master's course uh, in a few months time. I just wondered if you can tell us what you're going to be uh, doing. Yeah, so um, I've just done an undergrad degree in sports therapy. Um, however, I've decided that I have more to contribute in the way of um, individuals who have, have had significant life changes and disabilities um, within their life. So um, I'm going down the route of occupational therapy. Um, so I plan on doing a master's in occupational therapy in September at Northumbria University, which means two two more years of education. Um, and then I'll be done. No more after that. I've sworn to myself. <laughs> <laughs> can't do any more. Um, yeah, so that's the plan to then become an occupational therapist. And what made you decide to uh, study occupational therapy? Um, as I say, like I've had a lot of experience with people who have had really significant life changes and I've been able to help them kind of grow back into independence. Um, a lot of it free sport, to be honest, but um, just simple things like teaching someone how to travel on a train or tie up their laces and showing them they can do it. If I can make it a daily impact like that, um, free work I would love that and it would just um, yeah it would just give me inspiration day. how did you um, as you mentioned you did your undergrad uh, in sports therapy um, how have you found the challenges of balancing you know your, your sports obviously being very busy with those and your studies um, yeah I mean so kind of there's a big thing about this whole dual career um so kind of being an athlete and being a student is a dual career um and I didn't really understand what that meant at first but when I was actually doing it it, it is literally like having two careers at the same time because you can't be an athlete without committing to it um and that does mean simple things like preparing your foods rather than going out and just being a typical student and, and just buying McDonald's and <laughs> Like actually having to weigh out your oats in the morning and just simple stuff like that that takes up a lot of your time. But then obviously to be able to um, manage your time in relation to kind of getting your work done, assignments in, exams, um, in particular kind of going to international tournaments took up a lot of my time. Um, to be able to go to America and represent GB was great but at the same time I had to change my exam dates and stuff like that so um definitely kind of gave some challenges on the way but if you're motivated enough to do it and work hard enough um then it's definitely possible it's just you've just got to be able to pull your finger out and do it and did you find your university was supportive um obviously as you mentioned you know you had to change an exam dates for they do they kind of do what they can to try and uh, you know help support you with your your goal yeah definitely um they were quite keen to celebrate the success that I'm getting within the sport um, as I was on a scholarship with them as well. Um, so I was able to kind of get all circumstances. I found that I was doing so much training and therefore I didn't get enough time to do some assignments um, necessarily quite on time because obviously as well as the actual sporting career it was my disability as well which at times kind of made things a little bit more complicated in regards to completing assignments so they gave me the extra deadlines that I needed and um, within reason so yeah they were pretty supportive. And uh, we've talked obviously a lot about your sport and, uh, and studies as well um, what are your passions outside of, of those? Um, just to help people <laughs> <laughs> just to be person is just to help people um 
I mean, I guess that's why I'm doing occupational therapy is because I just, I just 100% believe that everybody has the right to achieve. Um, and if I can do anything, even if it's smile at someone down the street and um, make their day and then kind of like lift up their mood after they've had a bad day or anything like that, kind of that just means the world to me. So um, whether it's volunteering or, or kind of just doing anything like that, just kind of just have lunch and socialising and stuff like that. And just being with people people are amazing <laughs> <laughs> um and you mentioned at the start obviously uh the best thing about any vision impaired person is obviously when they have a guide dog having previously had a guide dog i can appreciate <laughs> how people always want to talk to you not because they want to get to know you but they obviously just want to get to know you, your dog and say hello to your dog um i just wondered um <laughs> how long have you had buster uh and was he your first guide dog uh yeah buster's my first guide dog so he's five and i've had him for about three years now um before that I used a, a white cane and it was pretty pants um it, um it was definitely a change when I got Buster he sped me up loads and he gave me the confidence to be able to go how can I go in he may be able to walk in and out of crowds in London um to be able simple things like if there was a fire alarm I was so nervous how do I get out in a fire like I don't even know where the door is and it's and everyone's screaming and everyone panicking whereas the buster is just amazing i can just say to him i'll find the door and he'll find a way out or find the seat and he'll find the seat or find the bin when he's been to the toilet he's just he can do all these amazing things that, that people don't realize that um that, that guide dogs do for you and um, what was involved, you know, when you first got Buster, uh, you know, uh, obviously uh, from own experience, understand obviously there's quite a bit of training that go, you know, goes on when you first get a guide dog. So can you just, do you mind just briefly explaining what was involved when you first got him? Yeah. Um, so obviously there's unfortunately quite a significant waiting list and even more now since COVID um, to get a new guide dog. Um, so there's a kind of an assessment process to kind of identify what your needs are in relation to getting a guide dog. Um, and then once you do get the dog, um, it takes some training between you and you and your dog to create that partnership. The dog's done two years of hard work and then it's your turn to uh, pull your finger out and make sure that you kind of create this good partnership with the dog so that you work alongside each other and make it work. Um, so I did two in a hotel, um, just me and him doing some training and kind of just making sure I know how to look after a dog. Um, I'm just going to get to know him a little bit, learn some of his habits. On the first in our hotel, he stole all my bananas out of my suitcase. <laughs> I soon, soon had to learn that he loves his food and to keep everything hidden. Um, but then, like when you go home, you kind of then start doing routes in your local area, and um, they sign you off and say, "Right, you can go out and kind of do the routes that you need to, um, and you're fully capable of um, this good partnership to be able to kind of." just approach the world like anywhere else <laughs> I, I think the uh you know it's funny what you say about uh buster with the bananas because uh you know having had banwell you know my my old guide dog uh you know i, I think it's quite funny because you know people just assume that guide dogs are like perfectly behaved all of the time and you know 99 of the time they are incredibly well behaved they do a magnificent job but they are still dogs they still you know have their own personalities and uh you know they can still be cheeky and uh, mischievous and do things that perhaps they shouldn't <laughs> Yeah, 100%. He is such a character um, and I wouldn't change him. Well, I, sometimes, some days I say, oh, blimey, I wish you weren't so foodie or 
Um, but no, in general, I wouldn't change him for the world. He he, he saves like literally saved my life on a on a daily basis. Um, makes me want to wake up in the mornings and on occasions stops me from being able to, stops me from walking down the flight of stairs or falling off the edge of the platform or getting run over by a car and I I can't like um, there's no way obviously thanking a dog really is there but like in general with the with the charity I can't thank them enough for what this dog does to me dog dog does for me every day I think the best way to thank a Labrador is uh, lots of food and lots of belly rubs yeah 100 percent yeah lots of cuddles, <laughs> lots of cuddles. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely well no um, listen it's been brilliant chatting to you thank you very much for uh, joining us um you know it's been a real pleasure to kind of get to know you after over the last sort of five years or so and uh, you know i think you're a great role model for uh, you know not only anyone who's visually impaired but uh, just for you know young people in general i think uh, you know you're a real uh, inspiration in terms of everything you've achieved and and you know the, the fact you keep driving yourself to and push yourself to to you know achieve more and um, you know i wish you good luck with uh, with your course and uh, for your future with uh, both the, the cricket and uh, obviously the GB Gold Ball. Fingers crossed we'll be seeing you at the Paralympics in uh, 2024. So uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lois. Please take the time to leave us a review on uh, Apple or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. It will only help me to improve going forward. I'll be creating social media platforms uh, for the podcast uh, soon on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. So please keep an eye out for those. And thank you for listening and I'll see you next time on the Disability Sports Podcast.